This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Amy Goldstein, welcome. Thank you. Um, it's a real pr- pleasure having you. Um, you've been here for the Sydney Writers Festival. I have. My first yeah. visit to Australia. Ah, first ever. <laughs> first ever. There you go. Well, welcome. What did you think of it? I've been having a lovely time. Have <laughs> <laughs> you? Good. I, um, I heard you, um, you've been impressing crowds at the festival. Is that right? Oh, well, the crowds would have to answer that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Humble. Okay. Amy... Um, uh, has written a book. It's called Janesville, an American story. Is that how you pronounce it? It is how I pronounce it. Yeah, Janesville is the story of what happens to an industrial town in the American in the American heartland when its factory stills. But it's not the familiar tale. Amy is a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter. She spent years in Janesville, where the nation's oldest operating assembly plant shut down. General Motors was it? Yes, it was. Yeah. She investigated the human consequences of one of America's biggest political issues. Amy has been a staff writer for 30 years at the Washington Post, where much of her work has focused on social policy. And this is the first time you've taken your hand to writing a book. It is. Tell me how that came about. Well, about a decade ago, during what we call the Great Recession in the United States, and you call the global financial crisis here. I was wondering that, yeah. Yeah. Um, I was covering a very broad social policy beat, and I became interested in the question of what effect the bad economy really had on people. So I did just a few stories for The Post looking at this. I did one story out of Florida uh, in which I was talking to people who were falling out of the middle class onto welfare rolls. Just hung out for a few days in a welfare office in southwest Florida. People were applying for cash benefits and were just absolutely shell-shocked to be there. And these were people who had always been self-reliant and suddenly they'd lost work or in some cases they'd lost houses and they needed help that they never imagined needing. Did it happen gradually? I mean, how, how did it happen that the fall seemed so drastic? Well, in some parts of the country, there was a very bad housing crisis. Uh, to start with. To start with. And people were just losing homes. Uh, they just couldn't keep up payments. Their mortgages were uh, just falling apart. Um, and I guess what struck me was that these people just seemed, you know, even through just the normal interviewing you do for a newspaper story, felt so bad about what was happening to their lives. It just completely was shattering their identities of themselves as self-reliant people. And I thought, this is such a different trajectory than 
we tend to have in the United States. Um, this notion of the American dream is an upward trajectory, not a downward trajectory. But I've got a question around that. I mean, you know, industry has come and gone and towns right. have been wiped out. Why do you think it was particularly worse at this time? Well, this was, so the process of deindustrialization, in other yeah. words, factories closing, has been going on uh, in the United States since the 1970s, basically. Yeah. So it's not a new process, but what happened during this bad economic time was it was not limited geographically. There were jobs that were vanishing all across the country and all kinds of work, professional work as well as this kind of working class industrial work that I'm focusing on in Janesville, Wisconsin. And I think the scale of it, the breadth of it, was just shocking. Um, and when I was looking for a place to write, because I was just so powerfully moved by how profoundly these people I was just interviewing for a few of these stories I was doing for my newspaper were feeling that their lives had been disrupted in a direction that they had never imagined that their lives would go. I thought, this is something very, very big happening in this country. And um, looking at the other journalism that was being done, a lot of it was political journalism about you know, then fairly new President Obama's economic policies, whether they were good or bad, whether the government should or should not be uh, giving loans to rescue the financial institutions that were in trouble or the auto industry that was in trouble. And I realized that there wasn't much writing about what really happens to people and to the texture of ordinary places when good work goes away. And that struck me as just a profoundly important story to tell and for the first time in my long career, I took some time off from my job to find a place that I could write about. And I was interested in finding a place that, you know, as we were just talking about, had not been part of the American Rust Belt. Um, I wanted to show what... Why is that? Because that had been written about or because... That was not a new story. Yeah. You know, places like Flint, Michigan, sort of an iconic yeah. place associated with the loss of auto jobs, that was an old story. I wanted to show what this economic fall looked like at this time. So that's why I was looking for a place where there was a huge loss of jobs in a community that had never known that before. Right, okay. And how did you come across... So what led you to come to Janesville? Well, I was looking for a setting for a newspaper story about the bad economy. Somebody had mentioned to me that there was a small Wisconsin city... I had never heard of. And can you can you remind us where Wisconsin is? Yes, Wisconsin is in the American Midwest. Um, this town is about two hours from Chicago, north of Chicago. Right. Um, this is in southeastern Wisconsin. And what I was told is that there was a small city called Janesville that had lost what was the oldest operating General Motors plant in the entire corporation. Um, that it had started out making tractors... Um, in 1919, just after the end of World War One, and it started turning out Chevrolets in 1923. Yeah, well. So I thought that the fact that this had been the best working class job, uh, this had been the best that this had been the best set of working class jobs in this small city for generations, and suddenly this work had vanished, would make this potentially a very interesting place to get to know and to write about. Um, the other thing that interests me about Janesville, Wisconsin, is that it's got some interesting political attention. Uh, it's got some interesting political tensions. Um, before I knew much of anything else, I knew that it was a 
old union town, old United Auto Workers town that tends to lean Democratic. And his congressman was Paul Ryan, who had been representing uh, Janesville since he was 28 years old and uh, hadn't yet, at the time that I began doing this research in 2011, uh, become the Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives, a very, very powerful figure in the American government. Um, but it but was not already... Democratic, though. He's, he's Republican. He's Republican. And yeah. his... Didn't con- he resign recently? He did resign recently. He's going to be yeah. leaving Congress at the end of this year. Yeah. Um, but the fact that there was this very conservative congressman whose district has more Republicans than his hometown, so that's how he keeps getting reelected. Uh, so even though Janesville's Democratic... Is district configured in a way that has a lot of Republicans uh, right. in it. Okay, got it. Um, yeah. I just thought there might be some interesting tensions between the political leadership of this community and the union identity of this town that might potentially be something interesting to find. And I thought a lot about what were the criteria of the places of the place that I was going to find. I wanted to pick a place where the pattern of job losses. Uh, was comparable to what was happening nationally because my whole idea um, in setting out to do this work was I wanted to write a microcosm that could be a metaphor for what was happening in many communities. Um, so in Janesville, Wisconsin, as across the United States during this bad economic time, uh, a lot of the jobs that lost were ones that had paid pretty well but didn't require a lot of formal education. So that was two of these auto worker jobs that had disappeared in the small Wisconsin city. Um, more men than women lost jobs during the Great Recession. That was true in Janesville and nationally. So I knew that no place could be a stand-in for every place, but I wanted a place that was sort of a credible metaphor. Right. And so you found it. I found and it. was your intent at that point to write a book or just to go and poke around and see what kind of stories you'd find? Um, I had never written a book before. And for the first many months I was working on this, I called what I was doing the project. Right. <laughs> which was You didn't uh, want to promise enough. yourself something. <laughs> exactly. It held out the possibility <laughs> of the B-O-O-K word. Yeah. But it wasn't committing myself yes, to that before. Yeah. I knew what I was going to find there. I mean, it was an important thing to figure out whether people in this community that wasn't my community were comfortable talking with me. That was an important precondition. Mm-hmm. Um, so the summer of 2011, I made a couple of exploratory visits just to start to and get to know the community. And where were you living? Were you living at Washington? I was in Washington. I was right. in Washington. Um, and I had been to Wisconsin a grand total of once in my life at that point. Right. So this wasn't a place that, I mean, not only was it not a, not my place, but it was not a place I knew particularly well. Yes. Um, but I had, uh, you know, being a reporter, it's not hard to figure out who might be the people who I'd want to meet in this place I How didn't know. How big was it in terms of population? So Janesville is a city of about 63,000. That's small. It's small. Um, it actually hasn't lost population, even with all this job loss. It's kept its population, um, which I think says something about people's loyalty to this community. Yeah, It's a place where if you think about an auto plant that's been there since early in the 20th century, almost a century ago now, you know, there were generations of people for whom this was the best working class job, set of jobs imaginable. And uh, there were all kinds of supplier companies that were there. There was a big seat making factory. Ooh. 800 people. It's all the support. It's all the support for the General Motors plan. I just want to make a comment on on my observation, and and we talked before this podcast about my interest in the US, and and I visited there frequently. 
I noticed that Americans more so than Australians travel. Uh, I mean, not travel. They move for they go to university, um, they go to college, and they move away from their hometown usually. We don't have that culture here. People tend not to move very far from where they grew up. Some do, some don't, but it's culturally you're not going to move from California to, to New York um, as Americans do. And I, I, what struck me about doing the research around you is these people aren't moving as I thought Americans did move. Do you know where I'm coming from? That's right. So yeah. let me make a couple of points. Um, broadly, mobility, that's what we're talking about. Okay, mobility yeah. in the United States has been declining. Uh, so fewer people are moving to new places. That's not to say nobody is. That's not to say that the kind of culture you're describing doesn't exist. But it's not quite as widespread as it was, say, a generation ago. Ah, uh, is that right? Yes. But in particular, Janesville is a place where people really feel that they belong. Yeah. Um, if you think about how long these auto jobs were there, the way you got a job at the General Motors factory was you knew somebody who could hand you a coupon to apply for a job. So but if you think back to the Great Depression yes. and some of the images I have, some of the photographs I've seen around that in the US, That's particularly right. in America, people the moved. The dust bowl and people heading west. Yeah. Yes. They, they loaded up their whatever, however the way they were moving and off they went. So people just moved to find work. That didn't happen here. So one of the things that really struck me because I didn't, I mean, I knew that there were a lot of jobs that went away. There were about 9,000 jobs, according to federal figures, that had vanished in this county that Janesville's the county seat for, the biggest town in, uh, in 2008 and 2009. Lots and lots of people had these jobs vanish. Um, one of the things that I found, I mean, there were different ways that people tried to cope. I mean, that's what I was principally interested in. When good jobs went away, what decisions do people make when there weren't good decisions left? I mean, when there weren't good choices left. And some people took bad local jobs, but one option, if you had been a General Motors worker, not at the supplier companies, but if you had been at General Motors itself, was um, you had rights to transfer to other GM plants that were still going elsewhere in the country. And what I learned is that there were some people who moved to these other auto plants, but more frequently, people were commuting, and they were commuting to Texas. They were commuting to outside Kansas City. One of, how long would that be? Really, really, really far. Oh, would it? Yeah. Um, one of the main families uh, whose experience is over five years I trace in this book, uh, the GM worker who lost his job in Janesville, started commuting a shorter distance, uh, which was to Indiana. That was about a four-and-a-half-hour drive away. Mm. And he leaves, um, he's still doing it. He started in March of 2010, um, after he tried. So he commutes daily? He commutes weekly. Oh, weekly. He commutes, he gets in his car on Monday mornings, um, with a couple of his Janesville GM buddies who also are working in Indiana. Drive four and a half, drives, they drive four and a half hours. They work second shift, which means that they work from the afternoon into fairly late at night. And they do that so that when they get off late on Friday nights, they drive back, getting home about three in the morning, and he can sleep for two and a half nights in his own bed with his wife. And then they turn around on Monday morning and do it all over again. He started this in 2010, and he's got several more years until he'll be eligible to retire. GM, you can retire after 30 years. 
his father, um, who was kind of a big guy at this General Motors plant, uh, retired just around the time that his son was losing his job in 2008 and has been collecting a good pension, health benefits, feeling guilty that his son was losing work at the time that he's kind of reaping the rewards of a General Motors career. Gosh, that's so, that's tough, isn't it? Because that's going to have an impact not just on his community in Janesville, but where he's going to. If people are only just coming into work and then leaving on the weekend, I mean, it's such a huge social impact for both towns. Absolutely right. And, uh, I mean, the corporation of General Motors was not in good shape, to put it mildly, around the time that the Janesville plant closed. In fact, General Motors announced four plants were closing the same day they announced uh, that Janesville was going to be closing down. So at this Indiana plant, which is a truck-making factory that for which you know the demand is pretty good for these trucks, um, there are people from a number of plants uh, around the country who have all converged there. And... Um, you know, they've retained their local identities. They are wearing the caps from their hometown or at least home state football teams. You know, mm-hmm. there's like this little, you know, kind of microcosm of the country in this, uh, in this Indiana plant. And, you know, I went to visit, um, his name is Matt, Matt in, uh, in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Um, where he works. Where he works. And, um, I asked him to show me his apartment. He lives, he, uh, he's a roommate who's also from Janesville. And when I came to this apartment, it was like a shrine to Wisconsin. Um, so the football team, uh, the uh, Packers, um, there's a big Packers um, bedspread on his roommate's bed. Mm. Um, there was a um, buckhead, a deer, um, that Matt had shot on his grandfather's farm in Wisconsin that you see right when you walk in the door. Do you know what that reminds me of? That is such an interesting point because, and it's, it would be the same in the United States, when refugees come into to our country and, you know, they tend to live with each other or near each other and start building a community that yes is in Sydney or yes that is, you know, wherever it is in San Francisco, for instance, but something that is still home. And we, some Australians are very critical of that because they're saying that they don't assimilate. So um, it's a funny thing because it's American to American, right? Exactly. So there's not this sort of cross... Well, it means it's human nature, doesn't it? Exactly, exactly. And Matt is very clear on the point that even though he spends five days every week in Indiana, home is Wisconsin. Of course. I see that. And that's what, that, that's, you can ask a refugee where home is. That's a really interesting point, isn't it? Exactly. Mm. Okay. So I want to know the logistics of doing a project like this. So you leave your job or you take leave. I took a leave. I took leave. And are you commuting now? What are you doing? Are you living in Janesville? Uh, so I was fortunate um, to win a fellowship um, at Harvard, uh, something called the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study, um, which was a really lucky stroke because um, I had never taken a leave from my job before. And um, this gave me a way that I could have an institutional affiliation, a little bit of a stipend. And... Um, uh, it was an academic. And you know, it gives you a reason. So you've got a project now. You have to do it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I had to, um, 
apply for this. This competition was pretty stiff. Mm-hmm. And I had to explain what I would do if I were fortunate enough to be chosen. Yeah. So it was kind of baked into the situation that yeah. I was going to work on this. Did you use the B-double-O-K word? Um, I think I said that it was possible this would become a book. Right. I really hedged my bets on this. Okay. I didn't want to not mention the word book, but I didn't want to imply certitude before I had I it. I think we're very different because for me, if I want to do something, I have to tell everyone I'm going to do it because then that makes me do it. So I tell people first, yes, I'm going to, you know, uh, start a, start a, launch a podcast. And I tell as many people as I can because that means that I'm locked in. Well, I was locked into, I'm going to start this project. Yeah. You're so still, there was a you're still dancing around the edges right, there. So I was dancing around the edges, but I knew that I was really obsessed with finding a way to tell a microcosmic story yes. of what happens when good work goes away. Yes. So I began to go out to Janesville the summer before I moved to Cambridge for a year. Right. And just started to meet people. I met an old-time journalist. I met on that first trip um, the men who were running the United Auto Workers Local, the union, Local 95. And the thing that really struck me about that was that uh, ordinarily there'd be workers from the GM plant who'd be getting release time from their jobs to be union officers. There were no more active auto workers. So these were actually... Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The General Motors retirees who had been officers in the uh, union officers in the 90s who had come back as volunteers to keep the union going. Wow. Um, I met an old-time journalist who had grown up uh, in Janesville and worked for the Janesville newspaper. And how did you find and approach these people? Um, I knew somebody in Wisconsin. I didn't know many people in Wisconsin. Yeah. I sort of whispered to him that yeah. um, this was not public yet, but I was about to take a leave from my job. Um, and I needed to get to know people in Janesville because I was sort of thinking that maybe this place I had never been could be a good setting for this project that I had in mind. And um, he recommended the journalist. So I found him. I called him and said, who else should I get to know? He recommended these few other people I also met on that first trip. The man who um, was the director of the local job center, um, which had become ground zero for where all these shocked you know, grieving laid-off factory workers went for advice on what to do uh, once their jobs were suddenly ending. Um, and I talked for hours with each, each of these people on this first visit about their perception of what had been happening in town. Mm. 
and also said, of course, well, now that we've met, who else should I get to know? Mm. So it was this widening net of people who I was meeting in town. Um, that first year, um, I was in D.C. for the summer, then I was in Cambridge, as I said, for an academic year, and I made roughly monthly visits. Um, I was and also, how long would you stay? I would stay for maybe three, four, five, six days. Yep. And did the, the, the physical appearance of the town, did it look like a town that had been... That the money had been sucked away from it. You know how that can happen? So that's a great question because the f- first thing I noticed as I was driving off the interstate yeah. um, into this little city was it looked great. Because um, that's important. It is important. And it was startling to me. And I mean, there's a page in the early part of the book where I'm talking about how all-American it looked. I mean, its economy had been stripped away, and still there were little American flags fluttering from the street lamps on the road into downtown. And on those first visits, I was talking to people a lot about this, and I was saying, what do I need to look at to see the pain? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Because you were expecting pain. Well, I knew that the job losses had been profound, that... This plant that had been around since just after World War I was totally shut. Um, I'll tell you one piece of pain. Um, on that very first visit, which was in July of 2011, um, this, as I mentioned, this journalist who I met with, um, finally, after we've been talking for a few hours, said, would you like to see the plant? And I was like, yes, of course I would. <laughs> um, it was sort of the center of the story that I wanted to tell, and I needed to start seeing it. So I got in the car of this man I had met a couple hours before, and we drove from his office, which was, I should say, in this bit of digression, but Jane's was also the headquarters of the Parker Pen Company. Oh, wow. Right. Um, I've got a Parker Pen. <laughs> yeah. Um, which also had closed down during this time. Right. So the world head, what happened, the world headquarters of Parker Pen had been converted into office space. And when I first showed up in 2011, about half the offices were empty. So this journalist was no longer at the newspaper. He was working as an education consultant. He had a radio program. And he had this office in this half-empty building that for decades, the most of the 20th century, had been the world headquarters of the Parker Penn Company. So um, back to my little initial drive with him down to the plant. Um, it's not very far, maybe 10 minutes from his office. And we were pulling off a street called Center Avenue, take a left onto Delavan Drive where the plant set. And it was just, just immense. And as we were approaching it, um, he said to me, I hate to see this. And I was startled because, I mean, he was a guy in his early 60s, um, pretty tough-minded reporter. I mean, I'm just meeting him, but I could tell he kept calling himself a cynic. And over the years, I found that I agreed with him. And it just didn't seem like the kind of guy who would be upset to drive by a closed auto plant in the town he'd grown up in and worked in his, mm. most of his career. So I asked him why this was upsetting to him, and he said his father had worked at the plant. Mm. And he remembered when he was a boy how proud his dad had been mm. to be able to buy his first Chevrolet on General Motors' wages. And I remember that conversation all these years later so vividly because that said to me so much about this community sense of identification with this closed auto plant. Mm. And when I was, you know, on this first trip trying to figure out, does this feel like this might work for a long piece of 
work. His reaction, it was so visceral, um, and he still felt such pain. And this was two and a half years after the plant had shut down, mm. said, this pain is really in this community. Mm. But as we were saying, I had to ask people, what do I look at to see the pain? And I was told a couple of things um, early on. I was told, first of all, look at the lawns, because people in town used to be very proud of their gardens. Mm. And you'll see in parts of town, there really aren't flowers planted, where people just can't afford to buy uh, gardening supplies. Mm. The other thing that I started to be told, um, which was really kind of a big picture lesson that I learned out of this microcosmic look at job loss, was that people who are middle class people really, I mean, I think that falling downhill economically from the middle class is very different than having been poor all along. And one of the ways I came to understand that was different is that people try so hard to hide it. Mm. Um, one of the other families that I trace um, uh, had three kids, two of whom were teenage twins, girls. And um, when I started to get to know them, I remember them confiding to me that they bought their clothes now at Goodwill, so of a donation center. Um, but they were very careful to find designer jeans among the used clothes so that their friends couldn't tell. Now, never mind that their friends, mothers and dads, many of them were out of work too, but all the kids were hiding it from each other. Everybody's trying to save face. Everybody's trying to save face. But also everybody's just trying to live their life as well. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. So the question of how do you keep living the life that you expected for yourself when not only your work is gone, but your entire work identity as an auto worker, I mean, Mm. this is who you've been, doing a kind of work that lasted your mother or your father or your aunt or uncle's whole 30-year career until they I mean, got you pensions. see that in individual job losses, you know, like if you're working as a teacher and, and you lose your job and then you start to lose your identity or your self-worth. And not that I think work is everything. I mean, you know, hopefully we have a balance and we have a life. But it is a huge identifier of who we are. So it's an identifier. And in the case of these assembly line jobs, it's not that for many people the work itself was so exactly. fascinating. That's I mean, right. people didn't often like this work. Yeah. But $28 an hour wages, particularly in a couple where both people are doing this kind of work, that buys a really good life. Yes. Um, especially in a place like middle of Wisconsin. Where housing's probably not that expensive. Right, exactly, where yeah. the cost of living isn't that high. Mm. Mm. So people had boats and they had campers and they had um, little cabins up north in more rural parts of Wisconsin. Um, and it was a good middle-class lifestyle built on working-class wages. Yeah. So they lost their sense of who they were. They lost their incomes. It's a pretty hard thing. It is. So how is the community now? And what what is it that's come in terms of work? What is it? I guess everybody's going to head to Janesville because of you. <laughs> so there could be a tourist element. Um, but w- what about... I have to say, I hadn't thought of that possibility. <laughs> oh, you had it? I think they're going to go in droves. So be careful, Janesville. Um, get your tourist shops ready. Um, what what is What is happening there now? Well, it really depends on what you use to measure. Yeah. Um, if you look just at the unemployment rate itself... So unemployment shot up uh, in early 2009, in the few months after 
these thousands of jobs vanished. It shot up to over 13%, really wow. high unemployment. It's now back down to about 4%. Um, so, What are they working at? Well, that's what I was going to say. So the unemployment rate has come down, but if you look at the kind of work that's around, um, industrial jobs, for the most part, have not come back, and significantly, no. wages have not come back. Okay. So, um, one of the families, the family that has the, had the, uh, girls who were high school seniors when I met them a few years ago, um, their dad, who had been a 13 year GM employee, he was in the uh, late 30s, early 40s when he lost his job, um, there were very few times when he was outright out of work, but he was just bouncing in and out of jobs that didn't pay enough, and some mm-hmm. of them didn't come with health benefits, which was, quite a worry. Um, he's now working for a refrigerator manufacturer outside right. Janesville, um, working in the warehouse. And he's not making anything like the wages he used to make. So he's had to make a huge life adjustment. Yeah. And, um, you know, his daughters were working five part-time jobs between them when I met them, when mm. they were in high school, and were quietly and um, pretty sensitively slipping their money uh they were quietly and pretty sensitively slipping their parents' cash now and then to pay bills, to mm. go grocery shopping. Mm. There's a scene in the story, let me just say, when um, they decide they're going to take their mom shopping for the first time. Mm. And uh, they stop at um, the credit union where they had their savings from their little you know, five part-time jobs as high school kids, um, each withdraw $100 in cash. Um, they do this late at night, on a Saturday night, so they're not likely to run into other people they know as much as if they were shopping earlier in the day. And when they get to the checkout line, they slip their mom the cash so that she can look like she's paying. It's oh, a beautiful story, isn't it? Well, okay. So a lot of... Uh, I know there's been a lot of commentary around this book and a lot of people are saying that this is... It helps us understand what happened in November last year. It helps us understand Trump becoming president. Explain that to me. Well, I think that's true and not true. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wrote a very non-political book deliberately. Um, I mean, there are political figures who wander in and out of the pages, but it's not primarily a book about politics. Um, Janesville has been an old union town, um, pretty democratic leaning voting town. Not that everybody's a Democrat, but that's, mm. um, the kind of prevailing politics. And even though Wisconsin voted for, um, now President Trump, um, for the first time since the mid 1980s voting Republican in the 2016 presidential election, that was a big deal, big shift. Janesville did not vote for President Trump. Um, I think that the union identity, the democratic identity associated with that union identity has outlasted the union jobs in town. And uh, the county that James was in narrowly supported Hillary Clinton. So when I was writing the epilogue for this book, which was just after the 2016 election, I had to think about how to piece together what the relevance of the story was for this political earthquake that had just happened. Um, electing this candidate who had never been a political candidate before, um, who was talking a lot about change. And what I've come to think is that 
the kinds of economic experiences, this earthquake that happened economically in this small city, are the kinds of experiences that in other places in the United States um, that went through similar economic trauma and weren't so democratic identified um, caused people in these other places to find appealing a candidate who was saying, I can get the economy going again. So it wasn't so much the Janesville voters, but it was people elsewhere who had had similar economic experiences, I think, that helps explain the election. If you think about people in coal country. Did you get a sense when you were writing or working on this project that that might happen? I think it was very hard to predict. The story that I, the chronology that I tell a little bit predates this election. It was from 2008, the middle of 2008, when General Motors announced that it was going to close this plant through mid-2013. That's the arc of the yeah. chronology. Um, so Trump wasn't yet talking about becoming a candidate. Um, mm. So most of what I'm focusing on predates this political earthquake. Um, it was, you know, I had a very... This was a microcosmic story, and I had this very Janesville-centric view. Um, I mean, I still... You know, I wanted this book to have larger reverberations. I mean, yes. that was why I did it. Yes. But I wanted to create those reverberations by telling a very intimate story. Yes, and a people's story. A people's story. Yeah. And a story that connects the experiences of people with these larger forces that yeah. even a community that turns out, I discovered, to have a lot of resilience locally... These are hard forces to control. They're big, powerful forces. But it is an example, I guess. I mean, it is one place and it's a human story and you're talking about it, but there must be hundreds of little places like it. That's why I did this. At what point did you find out that you were writing a book, that it, it struck you that, okay, I'm onto something here? Um, I know exactly when it was. It was the spring of, early spring of 2012, Yes. When I was still um, at Radcliffe. Yeah. And um, I had already been through more than half a year of research. Um, and so you were documenting all of these as stories. That's right. I yes. was just paying visits to town. Yeah. I was reading a lot of academic literature that was never going to appear in these pages, but I was teaching myself about what was known about the effects of job loss so that I could be interviewing people about the right issues or I could identify, oh, that's not what the literature shows. Um, and it was kind of an accumulation of things that I was hearing uh, on these visits um, and phone calls I was making back to Janesville in between that I thought, if I'm ever going to write a book, I am so staring at a book. Yeah. And I need to find a way to keep going. And that was scary. Um, that moment of... That like, moment that's, of... That's it. Yeah, because it wasn't like I had, you know, an economic plan for myself to keep no. going with this research. <laughs> That's right. Um, I didn't know that I could keep my job if I wanted to take more time away from it. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I was extremely fortunate that um, the then top editor of the Washington Post let me take a second year off without pay. Um, and at that point, I... Um, arranged uh, to have some appointments elsewhere. So I was hanging out at some think tanks and I contacted somebody I had known for a long time who was 
the head of the University of Wisconsin at Madison's Institute for Research on Poverty. And I said to him, you know, your university has this thing called the Wisconsin Idea, which is basically the notion that the university should support research about the state. I am so doing work about your state. Don't you want to help me? Yes, <laughs> and please. He, yeah, yes. and he said, well, I, I can't give you any funding, but I can give you an office and I'd love to have you here. So oh, um, after I moved home to Washington, D.C., that summer I decamped a second time and spent several months in Madison, which is about 45 minutes from Janesville, 45 minutes from Janesville, depending on the traffic. And um, that enabled me to be in town a lot. Uh, and it was really during those months that I began to figure out, of all the people I've been meeting, who did I think might be um, good main figures uh, to carry the story. Yeah. And so how long would you say that it took you to write? Um, so I started the summer of 2011. Yeah. Um, my book came out just about a year ago, uh, April of 2017. Uh, about half of that time I was on lease for my job. The other half of the time I was doing two hyperactive full-time jobs at once, which is not good for life no. quality, but was no. necessary to get yeah. this done. I'm just wondering how your family was coping. Uh, <laughs> patience. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, it took me about, so I took two years off to do this research. Um, I went back to work uh, for about a year. I still didn't have a book contract. Uh, that next summer I got a book contract, which was just a wonderful time. Um, but it led to the uh, next scary question, which was, how is I going to have time to actually write this manuscript? That's right, once you've got a deadline. Yes, yeah. and um, uh, to my great gratitude, the Washington Post um I should say gratitude and shock. The Washington Post allowed me another year to take off to write. Um, so I uh, lined up another gig at Georgetown University, which uh, generously gave me an office and a little program on labor and low-wage workers um, to write the manuscript. So it took me about a year to write a first draft of the manuscript. Well, Amy, congratulations. The book's called Janesville, An American Story. Uh, it's a people's story um, and, uh, I, you know, I highly recommend it. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Pleasure to talk with you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play, or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called Borrowbox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.